we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms where I give you a heads up about upcoming shows and which date and time they will be aired. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, you can find links to the shows, MP3 files which you can download, or links to your favorite platform like iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and all other major sources. You can find information for upcoming and past talk show appearances as well as new book projects at MarlenePardo.com. You can also purchase books and merchandise there. And you can visit my author page on Amazon at Marlene Pardo Pelliser. Due to popular demand, I'm narrating my true believer stories that have collected throughout the years in a new series called Supernatural Storytime. You can find links at SupernaturalStoryTime.com. If you are into classic horror, ghosts, and adventure stories, I narrate some of those at Nightshade Diary. And you can find links at NightshadeDiary.com. If you would like to read noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I do want to thank you all for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural, and today's show is about cryptids. And one of the first ones that I think is one very interesting are what are called Thunderbirds or my tongue in cheek Tour the Terrible. For those of you who are old enough to remember Johnny Quest cartoons from the 1960s where there was uh, an episode about a pterosaur that was still found alive by Johnny Quest and his family. But anyway, let's get on to a little bit about the background of what the Thunderbird is. The Northwestern Indian said that the Thunderbird accompanied thunderstorms and that lightning flashed from its eyes. It was said to feed on killer whales. The Miami Indians called it Piazza, or devourer of man, and believed the bird required sacrifices or it would attack a whole community. Thunderbirds were also seen as a kind of positive energy spirit that attacked monsters. The Ojibwe Indians of Lake Superior said that a Thunderbird fought with Mishipishu, a snake-like monster of the lake. The Thunderbird won the battle, and as he took the serpent away in its talons, 
A crack of thunder and lightning marked the event. The Iroquois, however, saw the Thunderbird as the guardian of fire. The Iroquois also had a Thunderbird called Oshadega, or Dew Eagle. And when the evil fire spirits attacked the earth, Dew Eagle would fly over the flames, and the dew from its back would put out the flames and make the earth fertile again. Now, the fossil record does show that giant birds called Teratorns, with wingspans between 13 to 16 feet, and which were likely contemporary with early man, did exist. The Teratorn is the massive ancestor of modern buzzards and stood nearly eight feet tall. Some historians suggest that the stories retold by Native Americans were based on discovery of pterosaur fossils. Now, there's several sightings. One of the earliest ones dates back to 1890, April 26th of 1890, and it appeared in the Tombstone Epitaph newspaper. And this is only nine years after the gunfight behind the OK Corral happened. And as a matter of fact, for some time, there was even doubt if this piece had actually even been written in the newspaper, but it has been found and I found it myself. And I'm just going to read a little bit to you of what was described and what some ranchers found in the deserts of Arizona. The headline of the piece reads, Found in the desert, a strange winged monster discovered and killed on the Huachaca Desert. A winged monster resembling a huge alligator with an extremely elongated tail and an immense pair of wings was found in the desert between the Whetstone and Huachuca Mountains last Sunday by two ranchers who were returning home from the Huachucas. The creature was evidently greatly exhausted by a long flight and when discovered was able to fly but a short distance at a time. After the first shock of wild amazement that passed, the two men who were on horseback and armed with Winchester rifles regained sufficient courage to pursue the monster and after an exciting chase of several miles succeeded in getting near enough to open fire with their rifles and wounding it. The creature then turned on the men, but owing to its exhausted condition, they were able to keep out of its way and after a few well-directed shots, the monster partly rolled over and remained motionless. The men cautiously approached, their horses snorting with terror and found that the creature was dead. They then proceeded to make an examination and found that it measured about 92 feet in length and the greatest diameter was about 50 inches. The monster had only two feet, these being situated a short distance in front of where the wings were joined to the body. The head, as near as they could judge, was about eight feet long, the jaws being thickly set with strong, sharp teeth. Its eyes were as large as a dinner plate and protruded about halfway from the head. They had some difficulty in measuring the wings as they were partly folded under the body, but finally got one straightened out sufficiently to get a measurement of 78 feet, making the total length from tip to tip about 160 feet. The wings were composed of a thick and nearly transparent membrane and were devoid of feathers or hair as was the entire body. The skin of the body was comparatively smooth and easily penetrated by a bullet. The men cut off a small portion of the tip of one wing and took it home with them. Late last night, one of them arrived in this city for supplies and to make the necessary preparations to skin the creature, when the hide will be sent east for examination by the imminent scientist of the day. The finder returned early this morning accompanied by several prominent men who will endeavor to bring the strange creature to the city. 
before it is mutilated. Nevertheless, no carcass was ever produced or picture. So in truth, no one ever really knows if they discovered or killed what sounds like an actual pterosaur. Was it a made-up story? Because even the pterotorn, which was or has been found in fossil records, was a feathered bird. But here a little bit of some other sightings that have come up over the years. Uh, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman wrote about a series of sightings in the 1940s. One was dated April 10th, 1948, when three individuals in Overland, Illinois, spotted what they originally thought to be a passing plane. But after seeing a large set of flapping wings, they realized this plane was something very different. A few weeks later in Alton, Illinois, a man and his son saw what they described as an enormous bird-like creature with a body shaped like a naval torpedo. The creature was flying at at least 500 feet and cast a shadow the same size as a small passenger airplane. Similar sightings around the same time in St. Louis, Missouri, prompted residents to write concerned letters to then St. Louis Mayor Eloy P. Kaufman, demanding that the city do something about these reportedly huge birds. The mayor instructed an administrative assistant to set a trap to catch one of the creatures. But of course, nothing was ever caught. Now, in uh, another sighting was uh, from 1977, July 25th of 1977, when a 10-year-old boy named Marlon Lowe was playing hide-and-seek with his friends when a large bird grabbed him by his shirt, lifting him about a foot into the air. As Marlon shouted for his mother, the bird continued to carry him for nearly 40 feet before dropping him. At the time, Marlon weighed about 60 pounds. At first, it was believed the bird was a turkey vulture. But after his mother did some research at the library, she found that the bird that attacked her son, a black bird with a white ring at the base of his neck, was a California condor, which is considered presently one of the largest birds in the world. Then in October of 2002, they had some sightings in Alaska. These sightings also made the newspapers. As a matter of fact, uh, on October 18th of 2002, the story appeared in CNN and through routers. And basically what it describes as a massive bird spotted in Alaska. The newspaper quoted residents in the village of Tojiak and Manokotik as saying the creature, like something out of the movie Jurassic Park, had a wingspan of 14 feet, making it the size of a small airplane. At first, I thought it was one of those old-time otter planes. The paper quoted Moses Kupchiak, 43, a heavy equipment operator from Tojiak, as saying, instead of continuing toward me, it banked to the left, and that's when I noticed it wasn't a plane. The Daily News, the largest daily in Alaska, says scientists had no doubt that people in the region west of Dillingham had seen the winged creature but they were skeptical about its reported size. I'm certainly not aware of anything with a 14-foot wingspan that's been alive for the last 100,000 years. The paper quoted raptor specialist Phil Schmeff as saying, Kupchak said the bird disappeared over the hill, and then he radioed Tojiak residents to tell them to keep their children in. Another local resident, a pilot who had initially dismissed the report, said he recently saw the bird from a distance of just 1,000 feet while flying his airplane. The people in the plane saw him. John Booker was quoted as saying, he's huge, he's huge, he's really, really big. You wouldn't want to have your children out.
Schmeff and Rob McDonald, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, said there have been several sightings over the past year and a half of a Stellar's eagle, a fish-eating bird that can weigh 20 pounds and have a wingspan of 8 feet, the newspaper reported. In other words, they were trying to say that the people who described the sighting were, were mistaking it for a Stellar eagle. But anyway, as you can tell, many of these sightings uh, that date back more than 100 years, and if you go by Native American mythology, they've existed for quite some time. But now let's go off into another corner of the cryptid world. And here's a story about something that was seen in Hakomak Swamp. Now remember, all these stories, they're true, even if it's not. The Hakamak Swamp, a 6,000-acre sprawl sunk into the gap between Boston and Cape Cod, quite literally oozes energy, a pine pitch consistency, black and bubbling, hot and covering every inch of the place. You can tie your boots as tight as possible. If you take one step into Hakamak, it is going to seep through and stain your socks. You're going to track it across the floor and onto the carpet, attempt to clean those socks, the ones you thought you protected so well, and this effing sludge destroys everything they're washed with. The carpet is ruined. Socks can be thrown out and wardrobes can be replaced. Rugs can be removed and forgotten. The Hakumak Swamp, that growling, snarling place, harbors and emits an energy so potent and so pure it gets under your skin and embeds itself in your bones. It permeates the muscle and bruises and bends sections of your skeleton in nagging gnat-like ways. Days and months will pass without a single thought given to one of the Hakomak's signature sagging swamp red maple or the serpentine carriage road that runs through it. Then suddenly during some blank daydream or span of restful sleep, the sprawl will just occur and present itself to you. It will insist a place of its own upon your focus. The swath of swamp once inhabited by the Waponaga tribe, and like most of the other Native American sites spread throughout Massachusetts, is established in local folklore. The majority of the lore pertaining to Hakomox is cliché. Recycled ghost stories get passed between friends at parties along with claims of sighting a thunderbird soaring over the canopy, Bigfoot crashing through the swamp, or lights of a UFO hovering over the carriage trail before disappearing into the ether. To me, then, before everything, these were sad little stories made to make people with too much time on their hands feel better about spending a perfectly good evening stumbling around the woods with flashlights. When I was much younger, I was an aspiring nature photographer and had taken to the idea of photographing places where nature had reclaimed itself. I would capture images of places once inhabited and then abandoned by man. I was introduced to Hakamak by a girlfriend's father. He had sparked my interest in the swamp after telling me a story about the place. He was a boy and lived down the street from a doctor who went insane. The doctor had run out of his house and onto the carriage road, a trail through the swamp connecting neighboring towns completely naked. The carriage road had been abandoned after people realized it was just not feasible to keep up with the maintenance required after fluctuating water levels would wash it out. The doctor was found over a year later devoured by mosquitoes. Upon mentioning this folklore to a good friend of mine, Bobby, we began spending a couple of hours a day after band practice going out there. 
I would snap pictures while we hiked the trails, jutting off the carriage road. We would stop, build a fire, and just shoot the shit in the relative peace and quiet. The carriage road, in a way, became a sort of sanctuary for me and my group of friends for a period of about a year. No one experienced anything even mildly strange or scary out there in that swamp, ever. The day after Christmas, back in 04, there were reports of a small snowstorm that would arrive in the evening. I had called Bobby that morning and told him I was heading out to Hakamak to take a few pictures. I was preoccupied imagining the landscape as gnarled and quiet as it is, shushed even more by a blanket of fresh snow. He agreed, admitting he was feeling a bit stir-crazy after spending the last few nights at home with his family. It was a mutual decision to spend only an hour or so out there. Hakamak was certainly not a place one would want to be if a line of squalls came in. I set off to pick him up and make the drive out to our wilderness asylum, hours ahead of the storm. There were light snow flurries that afternoon. I remember the carriage road being so picturesque stretched before us in the falling snow. A nearly audible quiet enveloped the entire path. Between my incessant snapping of pictures and the all the landscape cast over us, we realized we had walked nearly half of the entire distance of the carriage road, which is about two miles. The snow had begun to come down at a decent clip, so we decided to head back to the car before the situation became worrisome. Before making the trip back, we decided to have a quick cigarette. Standing there, the two of us in the encroaching whiteness smoking our cigarettes, I began to feel slightly uneasy. Not a nervous uneasiness, but the kind of anxiety you feel after waking up from a nightmare. A flickering light resembling an LED flashlight ahead of us on the trail caught my eye. A slow pulse cast dim shadows, all outlined in a ghostly blue around us. I nervously nudged Bobby, pointing to the end of the trail. We had obviously walked much further than previously thought, because the lights from the houses were visible at the other side of the trail. Bobby squinted it in the direction of the light, confused. There is no way we've walked that far. We've only been on the trail for an hour, he said, taking out his phone to check the time. Let's head back, I said, turning around, trying to inconspicuously hasten my pace. The snow is getting bad. After walking along in silence for about 15 minutes, I stopped and turned my head to see if the lights were still visible. Their absence mellowed my nervousness. We resigned to the fact that it was most likely an ATV or maybe a hunter headed in our direction. What I felt next, I can only describe as a sudden shift in air pressure. I compare the feeling to driving down the highway when the window down and then suddenly closing it. That compression around your skull and ring in your ears. The snow, which during our retreat had been drifting chaotically on the wind gust, broken up by the trees, was suddenly falling very slowly, almost methodically. Simultaneously, our eyes locked to a point in the trail, which seemed to be in motion, as if heat or gas was venting from the ground and taking shape into a perfect egg-like orb. Completely void of light, this disembodied shadow hovered in place for a few seconds and then slowly began to wobble down the path. It was heading towards us. The blood in our veins completely froze over. The most primal parts of our brains were alive, but now functioned purely undread. This thing, creeping down the trail to meet us, spat in the face of any conventional knowledge Jamie and I had gathered in our lifetimes. My friend glanced at me with a look of pale disbelief, washed over his face. My reply was voiceless. We ran. Sprinting down the carriage road, I could make out the rhythmic pulse of the blue light in my periphery. 
The cold light made the winter air biting at our faces feel even harsher. It was not getting closer, but it seemed to be just as prominent despite the distance we put between it and ourselves. Like some new moon materializing out of space, this light illuminated the fear of two grown men running like children from punishment. I could barely distinguish my heartbeat from my footfalls, despite them being the only living sounds for miles. Jamie's abrupt stop almost sent me tumbling. What? Why did you stop? He really didn't need to say anything. I had known the answer before I had even asked it. Our half-mile run had expelled hope in great huffs, and upon gasping replaced it with despair. This place, this expanse of nowhere in the middle of nothing, held no resemblance to any surrounding I had ever seen in the swamp. I couldn't even tell if we were on the carriage road anymore. The landscape looked alien. Long slender tree trunks rose hundreds of feet into the air, reaching to get as far away as possible from this terrible place. The ground, now covered with at least an inch and a half of snow, was pitted with sinkholes and sharp jutting bits of exposed root system. My head spun. I was dizzy, but still keenly aware of the pursuant disembodied blackness and the ghostly blue light that seemed to appear with it. We are messed up. We are in trouble. The sun had fallen and the possibility of small snowstorm had turned into the certainty of a nor'easter. It was not long before Bobby and I decided we were in dire need of help. We were both fully aware of a highway that bordered Hockamock, but for all we knew, it could be 75 miles in any direction. This storm had made the one chance of us gathering our bearings by sight impossible. After deliberating for a few moments, Bobby decided to call a few buddies with ATVs familiar with the area. The next call he placed was with 911. 911, what is the nature of your emergency? Bobby explained to the operator our situation. She quickly transferred the call to the local police department. The conversation with the local police consisted mostly of Bobby explaining and re-explaining to the officer, fielding the call, our inability to make out any discerning landmark. After being placed on hold many times, all the while hearing the increasingly bad weather report over their radios, the officer returned to ask Bobby a question whose answer struck another gradient of fear in my heart. How much life do you have on your cell? A little less than half. Bobby's reply prompted me to check my phone, except my phone was not there. I furiously batted at all of my pockets again and again. I had dropped it while we were running. Our second life raft was buried under two inches of snow, somewhere in this swamp, dead as dirt. We wandered for nearly two hours, desperately trying to retrace our steps, but the pace of the storm was making it nearly impossible. Inhuman growls and moans bounced back and forth from tree to tree. These ghastly guttural utterances made nerves in my body stand at attention and forced my brain into an adrenaline-filled frenzy. The conversations with the police became more and more desperate. They had sent fire engines. They were on the highway at the edge of the swamp and blaring their horns in an attempt to lend us direction towards escape. It was as if Bobby and I had wandered into a vacuum because we could hear nothing other than the strange noises stirring in the swamp surrounding us. This desperation was punctuated by familiar fear. A tension crept in, gripped my heart, and froze me in place. This feeling, this electric sensation tightening my whole body, was the same I had felt watching that orb, that shadow, materialize in the trail. This time, though, it was enhanced by the sure feeling of being watched. This was no comforting gaze of a heavenly creator watching on high. 
Something, someone was very much watching us from ground level and in close approximation. The awareness stopped me dead. I had turned around to ask Bobby if he was feeling the same when I saw something that would be forever burned into my memory. A man, a man very much human, at least seven feet tall, was standing directly behind Bobby. This thing was nearly on top of him. Every feature was completely obscured by shadow. A living silhouette, head down and slouching. The man's broad, hulking shoulders rose and fell with his wheezing gasps. Hands by his side, he stood as still as stone. Neither speaking nor singing, the man emitted a tone unlike any I've ever and hope to never hear again. This sound buzzed in my ears, a deep, nearly inaudible vibration that was twisting my insides to a panic. Bobby must have misread my face because he turned around in spite of it. We were running again, tumbling and tripping through the darkness and the snow and the sinkholes, some filled over with three feet of water. The noise was deafening and disorienting, like waking up in the middle of the night to the white noise of the television you left on. A combination of fear and desperation had completely taken over my motor skills and diverted all my energy into our escape. I was losing sight of Bobby as I kept falling over into the freezing mixture of mud and ice. Bobby was screaming. A bright light was approaching in the distance. I was struggling. My body was failing me. The only thing I could feel was cold in the presence of that massive shadow bearing down on me like some terrible nightmare. The darkness was overwhelming. The next thing I knew I was in the back of a four-wheeler racing and weaving through the swamp. Our friends had been able to approximate our location by what Bobby had explained to them. It wasn't 10 minutes until we were back on the carriage road, tearing towards the entrance where I had parked. I don't believe Bobby or I said a word until we were off the carriage road and met by a crowd of police officers, firefighters, and EMTs. As we were helped into the ambulance, I remember being comforted by the friendly, fiery flashing of red lights of the fire engine and their distinct difference from that ghostly blue light, that signal which had left nearly nine hours of my life tarnished in panic and fear. People and significant events leave footprints in time, indelible signatures that remain despite any attempts of history or development to erase them. This is what I believe. I know the ground of Hopgamot Swamp offers a mark, a stain which will remain well beyond the time we, as a species, disappear. Something in the forest. Let me rewind to my teenage years. My friends and I were 16 and living in a small town in the West Midlands. It's hard to put into words just how bored we were much of the time and so what seemed to be a wonderful idea was to load up with all the booze we could reasonably buy. Fortunately, the off-license was quite happy to pretend we looked 18 since we bought the extra-strength Lager, Thunderbirds, and cheapest spirits no one over the age of 18 would touch with a barge pole, and headed off into the nearby woods for the night. I don't know the name of the woods anymore. Maybe I did when I was a teenager, but it was a small wood at the foot of the Clent Hills. I remember us going there a few times without any real incident, staying close to the periphery and just drinking ourselves senseless around a campfire. But the penultimate time we visited, there was something different about the woods. I can't quite put my finger on what exactly was different, but it felt a different place. Darker? All of us felt on guard and there was a sense of being observed. We tried to ignore it, of course, tried to laugh it off and pretend it was all in our minds. But that night, me and one of my friends, Dan, decided after exhausting the alcohol to go and explore deeper into the woods. We stomped loudly off into the trees, maybe 
three-quarters of a mile or so when both of us stopped instinctively. Some primitive animal instinct hardwired into our DNA came to life in the darkness of the woods. I can still remember the hair standing up on my arms, the goosebumps. Dan was the same, looking around us, the feeling that there was someone, something, at the edge of our vision. We stood frozen for a few moments as we heard the crack of something heavy on branches a few hundred feet further into the woods and then a noise. The strangeness noise, I remember it as a roar. Dan later described it as a lion roaring while scraping metal against concrete. Sometimes in my dreams, I still hear it. And when I do, I always awaken in a cold sweat. But that roar galvanized us and we just ran madcap back towards the fire and our friends. By the time we got there, our lungs were white hot with the exertion and Dan had lost his penknife and lighter, but there was no way we were going back. Two of my friends were sleeping and the other two said they'd heard something but figured it was just the wind. I know Dan and I both wanted to get the hell out of there, but we didn't want to look like wimps and back by the fire. We started to question how much had been real and how much had been our imagination. So we stayed and there were no more noises that night. By the next day, we chalked it up to the booze and laughed about it. And then, a few weeks later, with the memory slightly faded, we agreed to go there again. More booze than ever, and for some reason, one of my friends had brought a small axe with him. We got drunk, really, really drunk. And I decided it was a good idea to try and chop down a small tree with this axe, which turned out to be a little too successful, as the tree then fell on one of my friends who was lying in a drunken stupor. It was only the light upper branches, so he wasn't hurt and just lay there, saying a tree fell on me to himself. But my urge to be a woodsman was not appreciated by the others, and they told me to go find a tree away from the fire to chop down. So armed with my axe and far too much alcohol in my bloodstream, I wandered off into the wood to look for a suitable tree slash victim. I don't know how far I wandered. I would guess maybe half a mile before the euphoria gave way to the realization that I was alone in the woods alone in the woods where I had heard something strange. I began to turn back, could see the flicker of the firelight through the tangle of tree trunks when I heard a noise in the woods behind me, close behind me, a creaking noise like a tree swaying hard in the wind, and my instincts told me to drop to the floor. I obeyed them, tumbling into ferns and ending up with my back against a tree trunk. The noise became slightly louder, this creaking sound, and I realized it was coming from within the trees. Something heavy, moving through the trees. I sat there, heart pounding in my chest, and breathing through my open mouth so I wouldn't make a sound. My hands clutched tight around the axe. It came closer still until I knew that whatever it was was now perched in the branches up over my head, and I was seized with a certainty that if I looked up, Whatever was there would know, so I huddled against the trunk in dark silence. There was a foul smell, like carrion or the inside of a rubbish bin that's been left to molder on a hot day. It passed over me like a wave and I had to fight an urge to gag, desperately trying to stay quiet. That seemed to last forever, and then there was another creak and it shifted to the right of me, and my eyes, now adjusted to the dark, caught a glimpse of something large and humanoid, shifting through the branches. I like to pretend my imagination made that bit up, that wrapped up in alcohol and fear I just imagined the motion, 
but in my heart I know I didn't imagine it at all. Just as in my heart I know if I had looked up, I wouldn't be telling this story today. I stayed there, huddled with my eyes open, until it was dawn and there was no sign of anything and then I ran back to the fire where my friends were sleeping. I woke them up, told them there was someone in the woods. I couldn't bring myself to tell them the truth of what I thought I'd seen. They grabbed their stuff and we got out of there as quickly as we could. We never did go back. Years on, I like to pretend I imagined that night. Maybe I did, but I would never go back there to find out. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks.